So here we are again, February the 12th, 2017, lecture discussion number 270 on the book of Romans. It's starting to be getting to, never mind, I won't get into that. And yes, uh, for those of you on the internet, the vast internet audience, we have returned and we are ready to robustly throw ourselves back into the fray that is our never-ending study of Romans. How how far can I go with this numerical uh, ascent? Uh, Right now, I think it would be prudent to know where we were before um, jumping into it again. So let me repeat some of that. It's been two weeks, after all, since we last saw ourselves, our merry little band of travelers traipsing about at Genesis 3 again. Now, we're back at Genesis 3 again, and I should say still, it's hard to get away from Genesis 3.15. It is a foundation and undercurrent of the entire Bible, Genesis 3.15. It is, so when you find yourself constantly returning, that means you're doing something right. Still, some accuse me of being lost. The common obvious response would be, it's impossible for me to be lost if I don't know or care where I'm going, which uh, I'm accused of often, and I don't think that argument is particularly complimentary. I, I only raise it as a barrier of convenience until I can come up with something better, a more comprehensive rebuttal. In other words, I'm stalling for time. Okay, where are we really? Last week, or two weeks ago, sorry, we were doing Kurt Goodell and his incompleteness theorem, which is, of course, also Werner Heisenberg's indeterminacy principle, or uncertainty principle. And we did some philosophical paradox reasoning. And then we got into romanticism in the contemporary church. And let me stop there for a second. Romanticism in the contemporary church. Of all people... Christians should be immune from this. Christians should be immune from sensual manipulation techniques. Alas, Christians of our time are the most susceptible to these techniques. The church is intentionally targeted because it is susceptible to these techniques. In other words, the ones who employ this know that the church is a predation-rich environment. And here they come. Intentionally targeted is the church now. And by scams and scammers, because those doing so have done the mathematical studies. They have focused group these things. They have put people in auditoriums to see how many of them they can manipulate with these techniques. The technologies are getting very, very extensive. And now, today... They know Christians, a very high percentage of Christians, will succumb. And they know what words are effective. The latest one that is being used the most is blessing or bless. For whatever reason, blessing and bless disables the intelligence of Christianity or the Christians, the intellect of Christians. And it's it's a sad condition, but... It is a Revelation 3.16 fulfillment. Don't, do not swoon over those with great swelling words of emptiness. That's 2 Peter 2.18. The warning of Peter, stop falling down over people who have this ability to speak words that move you. The words have emptiness 
I'll point out what the emptiness is here in just a second. Suspicion is a gift. Gullibility is a curse. And Christ commands us to be watchful. He says consistently, watch therefore, which contains within it the element of being wary or cautious. What are you supposed to watch for? You're supposed to watch for those who come in and destroy you. And one of the things you can do, and I've done it my whole life since I was a young kid, I came across a person that every time I would say that Christ is God, it would make them twitch. I'll never have forgotten it. I never have forgotten it. They hated Christ is God. Hated it. And you will notice that these these scams will always say God, 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 God. They'll say it constantly. They never stop saying it. But they'll never say Jesus Christ. And they will not say Jesus Christ is God. So all you have to do, they'll say, bless you, brother, bless you, bless you, bless you. They'll sound really good. They'll get you emotionally triggered. But never will you find the deity of Christ within any of their systems that they employ. But unfortunately, watchfulness has vanished from the church. Again, Revelation 3, he says, at the end of the age of the Gentiles, the last, the last partition, if you will, of the church, the last uh, dispensation of the church, the church will not have him in it. He will be outside of the church. He will be knocking, but he won't be in there. The larger the church, the less likely they have the deity of Christ. That's another one of Chronister's inverse proportionalities. I witnessed this emotional romanticism. I think I saw it occur, um, physically I saw it occur in my lifetime more so than ever. You can trace it in the church back to the 1920s. So it's relatively, relatively, uh, Madison. It's mostly new. How's that? Thanks for laughing. I witnessed the typical reaction uh, to Elvis Presley. The Beatles. I actually saw it. Ricky Nelson. Yes, really, Ricky Nelson. I really am that old. I really am. I saw Ricky Nelson when he came to Alaska. Now, how old is that? Go check that out, right? The conduct of the audiences when they, when the Beatles came, if you can look at all those old films, the, the, was at the time very discouraging to the church. The church saw this loss of control. And, and at the time, the church understood that evidence of the hell, of the Holy Spirit in your life is self-control. Let me repeat that. Evidence of the Holy Spirit is self-control. Godliness is self-control. So the church at the time of all of those people that I rattled off there was very adamantly against the audience responding in this way. They saw it as a threat. They saw it as a condition of self-control issues. And now the church acts like women at a Tom Jones concert. Again, I am that old too. But Tom Jones was famous for having people lose control of themselves in his audiences, doing things that were absolutely ridiculously inappropriate and uh, demonstratively foolish. 
There's a famous saying that the lovely Lori says all the time, that what one generation will tolerate, the next generation will embrace. And Christians should never react emotionally to entertainers, politicians, athletes, religious figures. Never. If you do, you are probably being manipulated by them. And intentionally and purposely and practiced. You can go to classes. I'll use the bass player as an example. So when he never comes back, you can blame me. Bass players can go to classes and drummers too, the rhythm section, can go and learn particularly uh, particular rhythms that will move their audiences. They can raise them emotionally. It's just very simple systems. You need to know when you're being manipulated. And Christians used to know. Now we don't. The worship of a human being is specifically prohibited in Scripture. And those in the, in the converse or the inverse to that or the complement probably, those who seek to be worshipped, adulation, who desire devotion, who accept it, who, who purposely engineer methods to cause it, those people are insidious. And the most insidious are the ones inside the church systems. You, uh, as a religious professional, I have been exposed to classes where they have taught pastors how to separate themselves from their congregation and how to elevate themselves from their congregation. I told the story of the man who used to come here but left because when the pastor would walk down the steps, every man in the audience had to stand up. And he said, no, I'm not standing up. Well, he was right. But there's a church here in Anchorage. And every Sunday, that pastor walks down and those people, those men, stand up. Now, that is insidious. Anybody who does that in a religious setting, who purposely tries to do something of that fashion, uh, they are rapacious. Do not be prey. Here's an axiom that is profoundly true. If you act like prey, you will be treated like prey. Enough of that. All sevens return to the first seven. That's where we really are. All sevens return to the first seven. If I had to have a title for the section we're in right now, that would be it. What that means, of course, is that all sevens in the Bible, of which there are thousands, all of those sevens return to the creation seven, or the seven days of God, or Genesis 1. So whenever you find a seven in your Bible, in the New Testament, certainly, but also in the Old Testament, every single one of them take you back to the creation seven. You'll be able to take the template that is the creation seven, and whatever seven that you are uh, um Studying, and you'll be able to lay them on site, on top of each other. And we started out with Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. We found sevens in Genesis 3, which is the trial of Adam and Eve, and we found a seven again in Genesis 4, which is the trial of Cain. Both of those are murder trials. And I have said, said that these, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, are seven-day p- patterns, and 
they therefore will bear correspondence to the first seven or the creation seven. This then is an occurrence traceable to a cause. By that I mean cause and effect. So you, when you see these sevens, you know that they're being caused by something. That allows you now to start your evaluation base on the Creation 7 template. I can barely talk again today. I've noticed that I'm starting to struggle. It's mostly lack of sleep. But I could be getting old. There's evidence that I am. Just take a look. When you begin to evaluate a seven in Scripture, look at that creation seven template and put them together. And also notice that the, uh, what has occurred is traceable. And so you begin to make a list when you do this. List makers are going to always list. It's what we do. So let me give you just a couple of examples of what I'm trying to say. Hopefully it will make some sense. The man and his wife are both naked. Man his wife. So I'm looking at the Adam and Eve sevens is what I'm doing. I'm going to compare those to the seven days of God. The man and his wife are naked. Both naked. And were not ashamed. That's how we start. The serpent of old So this is how we begin. This is what comes next. It's literally chronologically listed in Scripture. The serpent of old, which is a Revelation 12.9 reference, attacks. And who does he attack? He has two choices. He can attack the man or the woman. He attacks the woman. As you all know. Essentially, He asks her if she has free will. Let me explain that. Hath God said, he says. Serpent says to Eve, or the woman, Hath God God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. I am saying to you that Hath God, God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden, equals, Do you really have free will? No time to relitigate this today or how I've come to it. Just for now, let's just ask these two. Naked and not ashamed is connected to what? Clearly, it is connected to the question of Satan with regard to free will. That's what I'm trying to present to you today. How is it that, because again, cause and effect, an occurrence traceable to a cause, the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed, and ashamed, and immediately the serpent of old attacks the woman. How are those two related? How are they a cause and effect? 
Ask some other questions. What does nakedness mean in this context? What does Adam mean when he said in Genesis 3.10, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Let's just take that on now for fun. Isn't this fun? What are our choices? He says he's afraid. What is he afraid of? Is Adam afraid of God? Now that is the most common, that he is afraid of God. Do I think he's afraid of God? No, I do not think he's afraid of God. I think it's obvious he is not afraid of God. But that is the one you will see the most. So we'll call that A, but just discount it immediately in case you have it. Is he afraid of Satan? That's another choice, right? Is he afraid of himself? There's a choice. Give me another one. You can do this. Who else is left? I was afraid and I hid myself. Because I was afraid, I hid myself. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. All of those are together. Afraid of God, afraid of Satan, afraid of himself, afraid of Adam. Who's, out, who's left? Eve. Is he afraid of Eve? Let me ask you this. When he says this statement, what condition is Eve in? She's in a condition of sin. So, now we're arguing over how evil is she. Is Satan, is Adam in a condition of sin? How, how, how evil is Adam? Now you would say not very evil. How long were they in this condition before God came to them? Before Christ came to them is a better way of... I'll put something else in here. I'll add this. Is Adam afraid for Adam? Or is he afraid for Eve? Not of, but for. Hopefully you'll consider the differences there. Right now, this is a good place. Let's take this on. Why I think the scripture immediately disproves that. So we'll insert a description of God. a, A fantastically powerful description. I recently got a letter from Jennifer from Arizona asking about this. So I said to myself, yes, this is where it fits anyway. So um, it was a little bit different what she was asking, but but I think you'll see how it's applicable to our discussion here in just a second when I get there as a highly trained professional who can find anything in his Bible within an hour, no matter the pressure. Ephesians 2. 1 through 10. Let me read it. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's a satanic reference. All satanic references take you where? Genesis among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Here's where I think this is a piece of Ephesians that I think you must memorize, at least know where it is so that you'll find it whenever you need it. But God, who is rich in mercy... 
because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with Him. Okay, now, obviously Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a companion to Romans 2, 10 through 18, and Romans 4, 1 through 8. But it is also a portraiture of the goodness of God. So whenever you want to know about the goodness of God, then Ephesians 2. That's your subject. There's your passage. God is rich in mercy. How much mercy is that? A lot of mercy or a little mercy? Rich, if God is rich in mercy, contemplate, consider how much mercy that is. Because of His great love. When you describe God's love as great, how great is it? With which He loved us, so He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Again, let me repeat, always read the Old Testament knowing this description of His goodness. If you find yourself concluding somewhere in the Bible that God does not have Ephesians 2, then what are you doing? You're making a serious error. This is a description of Him. He is rich in mercy, great love, exceeding riches, kindness. How kind is He? How kind do you think he is? How kind do you describe him as? And how kind is he really? Always read the Old Testament with Ephesians 2 right in front of you. Now, thus the most obvious of the obvious questions. Did Adam know God better than you and me? Yes. He had an intimate relationship. Did Adam know God? Did Adam know the great goodness, the omnibenevolence of God? Yes or no? Did Adam know the great love of God? Did Adam know the richness of God's kindness, His mercy? Did Adam know that only God is good? Matthew 19.17 Did Adam know that? That only God is good? So, if Adam knew that, and I think it is clearly obvious that he did, was Adam afraid of God? Or did Adam know that God would come to save him? When you have Adam afraid of God, which is what most people do, it's very common, what are you saying? That God had come to get Adam in a condition of darkness... And do what to him? Kill him. 
Does that work with Ephesians 2? What did Adam think when God was coming? Who was Adam afraid of? There's your list. Jesus Christ comes to save. His very name means save. He says, he's saving all the time. Every time you see Christ in the New Testament, with the exception of Revelation 19, some will say, but I'll tell you otherwise. I'll say to you that even when Christ is ending sin, he's still saving somebody. He's always saving. Find the salvation all the time. His name is salvation. He comes to save. He comes to, uh, he, he comes to bring light to darkness. He is the life, uh, the light of life. I say it all the time. As much as I can, he is the light that brings life in Genesis. He brings life to death. Did Adam and Eve know that they were dead already? I think the evidence is overwhelming that they knew that. And I submit yes. And the evidence I have is that they have these fig leaf coverings on them. How extensive are those coverings? You've heard my position on it. Um, and these fig leaves are on our list. We'll have to put them on the board somewhere. We've got lots of stuff on the boards, but we're going to have to deal with these figs. They're a covering. Why were they chosen by Adam? Adam chose them. Why did he choose them? They aren't arbitrary. It says he sewed them together. What was that process like? How big were they? How big is a fig leaf? How How was he... Covered him. Why did he cover himself with them? He could have picked anything, couldn't he? But he picks fig leaves. Why? It's on our list. No Genesis 3-7. And the eyes of them were both opened. So I've got opened eyes now to deal with. What does it mean to have opened eyes? What's the inverse of opened eyes? Closed eyes. So now their eyes are open. But that, does that mean that their eyes were closed before? What were they open to and what were they closed to? And they knew that they were naked. There's that word again. We've got to deal with naked. Where is it? Here it is. What's that mean? Is it more complicated than what we normally think? Who wrote this Bible? Who's the author of the word? Genesis 3-7, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, which caused them, I'm throwing that in myself, cause of an occurrence, traceable to a cause, which caused them to sew fig leaves together and they made themselves girding coverings. That's what the literal translation is. How big were those coverings? What does it mean, girding coverings? What does naked mean? Why these coverings of fig leaves? What do figs have to do with nakedness? He's covering what he now sees as nakedness with figs. Why? Why are the figs the answer to this new nakedness that he has? Is this some kind of camouflage? Because he said he hid himself. The figs are associated with the hid myself. Did he say I need to be hidden? Here's your next question. Most Christian churches today, and I shouldn't pick on them. I'm sorry for picking. Yes, I'm not sorry. But most churches today will tell you that they hid themselves from God. I would consider that 
conclusion for a second. Do you think that Adam hid himself from God by covering himself with leaves and hiding in the bushes? Is that your view? Be prepared to defend it. Who is Adam hiding from? What's your choices? Is Adam and Eve hiding from God? That's choice number one. Is Adam and Eve hiding from? Give me one. Who's left? Satan? Is Adam hiding Eve from Satan? So I have a sub-Satan category here. Are they both hiding from Satan, or is Adam specifically hiding Eve from Satan? Who has Satan fooled? He's never fooled Adam. He's only fooled Eve. The Bible is very specific that Satan has never fooled Adam. Why would Adam himself hide from Satan? Can Satan fool Adam? I'll grant you we're in a new condition state. Would Adam hide from God knowing that God is what? A couple of things God is. One, he's the creator of time, which means he is outside of time, which is why he calls himself the I Am. I know you've heard me say that hundreds of times, but that's for the Internet audience, especially today. That was kind of a joke. No one laughed at all. Let the record show. One smile. One person that I pay to laugh didn't even come through for me. (laughs) Okay. I am, of course, refers to being outside of time. That's why he calls himself the I am. Because it's a reference to the fact that he is creator of time and therefore outside of it. How successful are you going to be hiding from someone who is outside of time and the creator of time? who's also omniscient. Did Adam know that God was the creator of time, outside of time, and omniscient? Would he be hiding himself, covering himself in camouflage, in order to, for God can't find him? Does God, does Adam know that God is omniscient? Certainly he did. Even a shallow cursory examination of life. Adam had had experienced life on a level that we can't even imagine. The miracle that is life, the complexity, the irreducibility of life, it's overwhelming evidence of omniscience, of an intelligent agency, a mind that is omniscient, an infinite mind, just life itself. We have covered that many times. Would Adam ever consider hiding from omniscience? Adam is not deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14. Always read the Bible with the understanding of the omniscience of God. Omniscience, of course, requires omnibenevolence, which means pure, perfect goodness, which is described in Ephesians 2. You cannot be omnibenevolent without omniscience, and you cannot be omniscience without omnibenevolence. I'll explain why that is. And, of course, omniscience begets... uh, um, uh, omnipresence, omnipresence is necessary for omniscience, as is omnipotence. I need all kinds of, I have to have infinite power and infinite access in order to have infinite knowledge. Infinite knowledge will cause infinite goodness. So always read the Bible with the Ephesians 2 portrait of God's character, his goodness, and also understand that he is omniscient. If you do that, you will 
find your reading, your studying to be productive. Yes, sir. Oh, that's a very good question. Thank you. If if he knew that Satan was there, he would know that the angelic realm was there. So angels deserve to be on there. Apologies to Mike uh, from Eagle River, who would also have raised that question. The question for the Internet audience is... um, because uh, I know you can't hear, we should drop a microphone someday. Do we have the technological capability? Yes. Do we want to climb up there again? No. <laughs> Fortunately, the one that climbed up there last time is still with us. But he, even he doesn't want to go up there again. But uh, the point is, is how much understanding did Adam have when he took the poison? Did he have an understanding of physical death and spiritual death and, and how the two interconnected? I believe he did because Adam had a brilliant, perfectly functioning intelligence as opposed to, say, us. The contrast between us and him is ridiculous. However, we, we always think otherwise. I think he did, because would Adam know, but the, would Adam have knowledge of the first seven days? The first seven, the seven days of God. That's my, all sevens return to the first seven. Adam clearly would know of the first seven, and therefore he would know the light of life coming to the darkness. He would understand the difference between darkness, which is representative of death in those first chapter, in the first chapter, and light, which is representative of light. Or light, which is representative of life. Either way will work. As an aside, the goodness of God will bring, will end sin. It is good to end sin. People will always say, well, why doesn't God let me sin forever? Why doesn't he allow evil to run rampant and never end it? It wouldn't be good if he did that. It wouldn't be just if he did that. Goodness brings accountability, justice, and judgment. So don't let me omit that in case you're thinking about writing me. That, that discussion isn't for today. Adam would not attempt to hide from his omniscient creator, the creator of time, hiding from the I am, hiding from he who is outside of time, is the pinnacle, the apex of stupid. So you have a position that renders Adam to be stupid. There is nothing in the Bible that even remotely suggests that he was stupid. If you think so, try again. Start with 1 Timothy 2.14. Satan never deceived him. Has Satan deceived you? Would you hide from an omniscient God? Do we hide from an omniscient God? Do any of you think you're really is working? Don't raise your hands here ever. Where was I? Notice how many times I've been asking lately, where was I? <laughs> it's getting bad. I might have to go back to sugared sodas. <sighs> oh no. I will never get that. <laughs> There's no possibility I could take my shoes off, maybe. No, I won't do that for the sake of the people in the front row. Okay. (coughs) So far, our list. Satan's question to the woman is the result of nakedness and unashamedness. Is that a word? Let's try it again. Unashamedness. 
Okay, not ashamed. As opposed to naked and uh, nakedness and afraid. So Satan's question about free will, do you really have free will? That's what he's asking. That's Matthew 4. You'll see that with Satan and Christ. Do you really have it? What's the, what's the implication? It's a rhetorical question. The, the implication is you don't really have it. And if you don't have free will, then you do not have existence. Existence demands free will. They're inseverable. That's for a philosophical debate later on. Saying that a lot today. Satan's question to the woman is the result of nakedness and unashamedness. She is unashamed as opposed to nakedness and afraid or nakedness and ashamed. Again, afraid of what? Is the tree of life part of this afraid element? Eating from the tree of life while both of them are in darkness or in death. As Dana said, is he afraid of the tree of life now? And you know my position on that. I think that's absolutely the case. But Christ now comes while they are in darkness. And he asks, where are you? Omniscient God asks, where are you? He knows where he is. The question now is, does Adam know where Adam is? And it's not just a location question. It is a spiritual question. And that all occurs on the first day of the travel, uh, travel, the first day of the trial of Adam and Eve. There's a seven day period that is the trial of Adam and Eve that relates to the seven days of God. And what I have just discussed occurs on the first day. <sighs> Take a little deviation here. Christ comes to Jerusalem. We all know he comes to Jerusalem on the first day of the crea- I'm sorry, of the crucifixion seven. So he comes to earth first day of the creation seven. He comes to Adam the first day of the trial of Adam. He comes to Jerusalem the first day of the crucifixion seven. He does it on a donkey that's covered with garments. They throw garments on the road and branches, leaves on the on the road. So, I mean, my goodness. Can you see that they are the same? I'll keep going. The light of life then goes to his house. The only thing that can be called the house of God is the house of God, which is the temple of God, which is in Jerusalem. Everything else is just a building. So the light of life, the light of creation, went to his house, his temple, and he threw out everyone in there who was selling salvation. Threw them out. Because you cannot sell salvation. It's insidious. To reuse that word, which we started with. It's a manipulative, romantic trick. Don't fall for it. That's a profound lesson. God hates the selling of his plan of salvation. Selling of salvation is exactly the same as darkness and death. Selling death. The light of life is coming to the darkness and the death. That's what he did. He did it in Jerusalem. He did it with Adam. He did it in Genesis 1. The pattern keeps repeating. All things, all sevens return to the first seven. It's what he does. Does Adam know that Christ comes to darkness? Does he know what, he, what Christ does when he comes to darkness? Is Adam afraid of God? Does Adam think God is going to execute him? 
Can Adam execute himself? Yes, he can. Did he? No, he didn't. He did not go to the tree of life while he was in darkness. Flee from these who have salvation for sale. Identify the self-appointed gatekeepers, the arbiters of salvation. If you find one, you know what you're up against. You're up against someone who is fooling you, who is manipulating you, and he will use romantic terms to do so. Ask the fundamental question, who can separate, because they say that they are the judge of what? Your salvation. You are dependent upon their analysis in order to be saved. Who can really separate the wheat from the tares? Can you do it? Can I do it? Please answer no. What is required to separate the wheat from the tares? What characteristic do you have to have in order to judge whether somebody is saved by Christ? Does he discuss this? Does Christ ever discuss this? Yes, he does. Matthew 13, 29. Matthew 13, 39 through 40. That's the parable of the wheat and the tares. He says that the Son of Man, him, sends his angels. He has angels. Who does that make him? He possesses angels. He created the angels. The Son of Man sends his angels to gather, Christ says. Christ tells his servants when they ask him, no, don't you th- don't gather. They ask if they should gather, and he says, no, lest you uproot the wheat from the tares. What's he saying about us? We can't tell the difference most of the time, if ever. I will send my angels to to the harvest. Jesus Christ is the sower of the good seed. He will send his reapers. I'm fascinated by those who assume that they have reaper credentials. Hi, I am a reaper. Here's my credential. I will tell you whether or not you are saved, whether or not you are a wheat or a tare. It's my job. Please give me 20 bucks. Usually it's a lot more than that. Last year I wrote my favorite joke, maybe of all time. I said, Chronister's inverse proportionality law says the richer the congregation, or richer the pastor, the stupider the congregation. I didn't say it exactly like that, but it's what I meant. Few people laughed. I have you on record now. So you're just as guilty as I am. And of course, the poorer the pastor, the higher the intelligence of the congregation, which means everyone here are geniuses. And I repeated it two years, two times in a row now, because I love it so much. (laughs) I'm almost, uh, I'm, Reasonably serious about my new law. I think generally applied, it's going to be be validated. Again, I'm fascinated by those who think that they have the ability to be a reaper. I always ask them, oh, so you're really an angel because the angels come to separate the wheat from the tare. So what are you doing? Since this is what you think you're doing, you can't be doing it because it says, no, you're too dumb. You're so dumb, you don't know you're dumb. That's dumb. Read the Bible. But again, 
there's so many that do it. Why do they insist that they have this ability? Why do they insist this is so? Why do so many want to be a reaper? I don't want to be one. It never would occur to me that I should be given the authority to determine who should be saved or who is saved and who is not saved. I don't want that. Especially against the plain truth that Christ will send his angels to do this. Okay, let's consent to continue asking some more questions. Adam was afraid. Adam was naked. Adam hid. Here's some fun questions. Was Jesus Christ ever naked? Yes, he was. Was Jesus Christ, Adam was naked and ashamed and he hid. Was Jesus Christ ever ashamed? Trick question. Be careful. Some will bring up Matthew 26, 38. Some will bring up Hebrews 5, 7. They do not know what those scriptures really mean. I will pound them again next week just in case. Did Jesus Christ ever hide himself? Yes, he did. Did it all the time. Hid himself in humanity. Took off his robe so you didn't know who he was. Walked among Israel. They did not know who he was. The Ark of the Covenant is hidden by covering skins. He is a, that, that is a picture of him. Why is he hiding himself and who is he hiding himself from? That would be very helpful. Because Adam is what? Romans 5.14. He is identified in Scripture. He is honored in Scripture as a preeminent type of Christ. So what is the relationship between Adam hiding himself, Christ hiding himself, Adam's nakedness and Christ's nakedness? Are they the same thing or is one a portrait of the other? One the type, the other the elevated or the anti-type? Was Jesus Christ ever afraid? I hate asking the question because I know somebody's going to say yes. This is omniscient God himself, creator God, the light of life. What's he afraid of? There's nothing that could possibly make him afraid. It's impossible. Again, this is the typology of Adam. It's what we're discussing. Only God is good. Always remember that. He's omniscient God. He's only good. So when you get in these typological discussions, do not assign human frailty to Christ. Anthropomorphic. I can't say it anymore. God's a doggone old. Don't assign your sinful condition to God. Yes, fear is absolutely sin, because fear is evidence that you are not omniscient. So you have now stripped God of his deity, which can't be done, but you've done it, thinking that you have, but you haven't. Does that make sense? There have only been two federal heads of humanity, Adam and God himself, Jesus Christ, who calls himself, who is called the last Adam. So the first Adam, the second Adam... That's sometimes confusing. It's really the first Adam and the last Adam. He is the last Adam, Jesus Christ is, because there will be no other Adams from here on or ever for all eternity. And I've made many references to this trial of Adam and Eve. Hopefully you've begun to do what now? Because you recognize this typological 
condition that is here between Adam and Christ. Again, Christ or Adam is called Romans 5.14, a type of Jesus Christ. How big an honor is that? Extraordinary. So, this trial of Adam. Hopefully, you've begun to compare the trial of Adam to the trial of the last Adam. Did Jesus Christ go through a trial? A judicial procedure? Absolutely, he did. The first Adam had a garment removed um, and a fig garment and then a fig garment removed. Did Christ have a garment removed? Let's quickly read that. How much trouble am I in back there, old person with the thumb? Ooh, lots of trouble. I'm still going to read it. I'm down to a couple of pages here. I can hurry. Let's go. 27 of Matthew. If I can find it with my glasses off. Uh, verse 26. Then they, then he released Barnabas, Barabbas, I'm sorry, to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is, this is the trial. This is Pilate <coughs> delivered Christ. That delivering theme is everywhere. The people deliver Christ. They never can betray him. Why not? He's omniscient God. Always keep the omniscience. So it's really delivered. The word means delivered whenever you see betrayed. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Now, some will say purple, but I will deal with whether or not it's purple or scarlet next week. I believe that it is scarlet. Isn't it obvious that the scarlet robe of Christ is correlative to the blood covering of Adam, Genesis 3.21. Let me take you to verse 35. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. Okay? So this is that's, that itself has been a great mystery, that section right there. That's uh, Psalms 22, 17 through 18. It hovers as mystery over the prophecy of Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What's the real meaning of that? Roman soldiers, the execution detail, allocating, dispersing the garments, the covering of who? Creator God. They stripped him of his covering. Think about that. They removed God's garment. They placed a scarlet military cloak. Robe there is a military reference. It means the uniform of the soldier. They, this certainly brings the first Adam into the discussion. Your fig apron is going to have to have a relationship between the military soldier covering cloak, scarlet robe of Christ. The Romans placed themselves in the position of covering, of removing the covering of God and replacing the covering of God. How are they doing? Not a good plan. But by placing this side by side with Genesis 3.21, we can begin to figure out what is meant. Why is it that Christ intended for these things to happen? He's God, right? He's in total authority over his crucifixion. My goodness. So what we do is we analyze the trial of Adam and we compare it to the trial of Christ. To not do that, to separate, the, to pull apart the trial of Adam from the trial of Christ, 
that's going to render the student uh, to stagger and blunder and wobble and the ditch will await. It will be a crash and a fireball. You've got to look at both of these together. Let's finish this up. Your favorite words of all lectures I do by reading Mark 8. This is your homework assignment. I asked you a bunch of questions. How many of them did you think I answered? I actually did pretty good today. I just obfuscated it in my usual method. I'm hoping you will see that here in just a second. Mark 8, 11 through 21. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with Christ, with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. If you're looking for a sign from heaven, go back and read Mark 8, 11. Figure out what a Pharisee is and don't be one. Do the opposite. But he sighed deeply in his spirit. Every time you ask Christ, every time you pray for a sign from Christ, I want you to imagine that he sighed deeply when you did that. Has he given you a sign? Oh yeah, he has. It's unbelievable. It's unimaginable. That's not good enough for us. Please knock that rock, or sorry, knock that frog off that rock with a bolt of lightning. That will make me believe. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, getting into the boat again, and departed to the other side. Think about what that means when God leaves you, gets in a boat, and goes to the other side. What are you doing here? How's it working out for you? Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than, a, than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Figure out what the leaven of Pharisees is, because it's probably all over us. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, because he's who? Omniscient God said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? That's a rhetorical question. What is he asking them? Don't you know? Can't you figure something out here? What's he asking them to figure out? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Do you have open eyes or closed eyes? Having And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Is there ever a time in Adam and this discussion of Eve and Christ coming in the trial where Adam has to hear Christ? Yes, there is. And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5,000? How many baskets full of fragments did you take up They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, 
How many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it that you don't understand? One more piece, and then we're out of here. Verse 34 of Mark 8, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me. All right, can I put that? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, for him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There you go. In case you think I did not answer a question. As the musicians come up in the proper order, usually it's attractiveness or covering, how well dressed you are. Sometimes it's age. Yes. What's that? That's an excellent question. We know that the skin covering was that comes in 321. So if the skin covering is red, what's the chances that the fig leaves are red? Okay, let me remove the partition. Is this where everyone stands? Because in order to be saved, you must stand. Because I have so decreed, please give me 20 bucks.